Hello and welcome to episode 7 of the Climate Change and Health Podcast. I'm Harry Kennard and this week I chatted with Dr. Catherine Tonner. Catherine is an environmental epidemiologist focusing on the influence of the physical environment on health and health inequalities, especially with respect to air pollution. She is currently Associate Professor at IS Global, which is the Barcelona Institute for Global Health. Like her work more generally, our chat focused on air pollution and its health impacts, but we also touched on the broader co-benefits of climate change mitigation. I hope you enjoy the discussion. I'm delighted to welcome Catherine Tonner to the podcast. Usually, uh, Catherine, we begin uh, with a little background about how you got interested in researching the topic area you're into, which is uh, air quality, broadly defined. Could you give us some uh, background about that? Oh, sure. Well, uh, firstly, thanks so much, Harry, for the invitation to be here with you. Um, uh, Not at all. And, um, you know, so I, I've even, I think, from when I was a... Uh, 13 years old, I was interested in environmental issues. And uh, when I started university, was thinking what was the best discipline to apply to environmental environmental issues. I was thinking about economics. Um, in the end, I, I ended up studying chemistry. And really, my first exposure to working with uh, working on air pollution was while I was um, in university and a, a research intern in an atmospheric chemistry lab there. And um, from there, I think I got more and more interested in sort of what was the main uh, sort of societal impact of air pollution. Why do we care about air pollution? And one of the main justifications is always the public health impact. So I started to get more interested in the public health side of it um, and then went on to do uh, my graduate training in, in epidemiology. Uh, but uh, it's been a long journey from, I think, uh, from a young age, but uh, this sort of taken me full circle from the physical science side to the health sciences. Yeah, no, I, I've uh, I, you're not the first person on the uh, on the podcast to have uh, gone through that journey, and I uh, have a similar uh, from physics initially, but you know, physics chemistry is uh, you know close cousins. Um, that's uh, that's wonderful. So, in terms of sort of helping the uh, the, lis- the listener understand a little bit about how environmental epidemiology works in terms of air pollution. Can you outline some of the sort of global patterns that we see regarding where air pollution is worse? I mean, we all have a sort of uh, intuitive understanding, but it would be good to get a sense of the the scientific understanding. Yeah, so um, in in many high-income countries like Western Europe and North America, the good news is that air pollution levels outdoors have been going down steadily over the last several decades, um, and this mm-hmm. has been due mostly to improved uh, technology and end-of-pipe emission controls, um, for example, on vehicles. Um, and uh, so this is obviously good news. In other parts of the world, we see the other tr- we see reverse trends where air quality outdoors is deteriorating. Um, but even in places where it has improved uh, quite considerably, uh, you know, we still have cause. Con- 
for concern in terms of the health effects because at this, uh, you know, we in recently have been uh, accumulating more evidence of health effects that we can observe at, at very low concentrations that you would see in Northern Europe or in places in some parts of the U.S. and in Canada, for example. So there's really, right. as far as we know from the epidemiology, uh, no safe level of, uh, let's say, particulate air pollution in particular. Um, so it's, and this is what is reflected in the new WHO guidelines, uh, where the uh, the new guideline for uh, fine particles is five micrograms per meter cube, which is which is really quite low. There are very few places right. where people live on the globe that have uh, air quality levels below the uh, below the new um, WHO guideline. But this is really consistent with the what we know from the epidemiology we need to get uh, air pollution levels down really low to adequately protect uh, public health um, so while it's been going down uh, quite a lot in uh, many high-income countries uh, that's not the case in many other parts of the world it's a, you know ambient air quality is a huge public health issue in South Asia uh, and in Western Africa for example um, and then there's the other part of the story, which is household air pollution. Uh, so exposure mm -hmm. to uh, combustion byproducts from meeting household energy needs. And uh, this is still a big issue for many parts of the world. Um, in general, the, the trends are improving in terms of uh, lower uh, levels of exposure to household air pollution uh, globally. But there are some, you know, for example, in sub-Saharan Africa, the progress towards getting access to clean, uh, clean cooking um, is, is been quite slow. So this is, right. uh, you know, there's what you could say sort of stagnation in, in, in that respect. Um, and I think there's some really uh, great resources out there that are tracking uh, ambient and household air pollution exposure levels globally. And uh, the one that comes to the mind is the state of global air uh, that's, that comes out from the Health Effects Institute and um, the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation. Okay. Um, and in terms of just a, a sort of a, a sense of uh, experientially, if that's, the, if that's the word I want, what five micrograms per meter cubed feel that that's presumably much lower than the sort of uh sort of personal sense of being in a a polluted environment so i'm I'm thinking about uh you know the Euston road in in uh london uh near u c l you've got sort of like whatever it is four six lanes of traffic uh and that sense that you're sort of really surrounded by a, a sort of pretty grim cloud of uh pollutants. Presumably five micrograms is so low that you would, around that, you would sort of get the sense of it being sort of like a clean sort of alpine environment. Is that is that the sort of uh, rough sense of things that really it has to be beyond what's even perceivably bad? Oh, yes. <laughs> um, I mean, one, so the, the WHO guideline of five micrograms is for an annual average. So this is, uh, you know, trying to capture this longer term uh, exposure, uh, which, you know, would be different than when what you expose what you're exposed to when you just cross uh, cross a busy road. So that type of short term exposure, um, which might be considerably higher, but five micrograms is quite low. So uh, for for 
uh, fine particles. We have many different sources. Some of them are natural sources. So even if we were, uh, you know, to stop all human activity somehow, we would still have some, uh, you know, a few micrograms per meter cubed uh, concentration in, in, in uh, many parts of the world just from natural right. sources. But five micrograms is getting close to uh, what would be the natural contribution from um, uh, two fine particles. So it's very low. And it's essentially okay. yeah, yeah. incompatible with fossil fuel combustion. Uh, so we, um, which I think is a really important message that to get down to um, the new WHO guidelines, we, we really need to stop burning things. <laughs> yes, and that's and that's across sort of all fossil fuels. Even I mean, the contribution we hear a lot about the difference between sort of um, coal and natural gas, but presumably there's still sort of particular contributions from natural gas, even if they're lower than coal combustion. Is that is that fair to say? Yes, I mean, obviously coal is is you know particularly inefficient, but um, but it's it's uh, but I think that's fair to say. And uh, you know, we have uh, one of the let's say, interesting and complex things about fine particles is just that there are so many sources of it. So even, you know, we, we even mm. if we think about a scenario where we have a fully electrified vehicle fleet um, and the electricity is generated from renewable sources, you still have contributions to uh, the uh, particle levels from the brake and tire wear. Right. So, uh, oh, wow. you know, it's yeah. not just necessarily combustion related. But that's uh, that's it. that's interesting to bear in mind. But I suppose it's still worth moving to that world because that's the the break and tire wear is 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 a smaller portion of current sort of contributions from uh, sort of petrol powered cars. Uh, absolutely, we need to move in that direction. But I think from a public health point of view, never lose sight that just replacing the the current system that we have with uh, you know fossil fuel based motor vehicles to uh, electric vehicles. It can't be the answer because uh, we know that uh, there are really large health co-benefits that can be uh, achieved by getting people out of cars and into more active forms of transportation. So public transportation, right. walking and cycling, this is where you get really big public health benefits uh, um, you know, while also uh, reducing the uh, greenhouse gas emissions. So, um, you know, yeah. just a full conversion to electric vehicles isn't the answer for for many reasons the brake and tire wear uh uh emissions of air pollution is one part of that um but the physical activity benefits from active travel is is i think a big part of that story and then also just you know what kinds of cities and and, and urban public spaces do we want do we you know do i personally would like to see a, a future where we have less uh, road traffic injury, congestion, more public space that's used for, uh, you know, the public, not just motor vehicle users. Yeah. So, okay, that's interesting. So the, the health impacts um, of uh, poor air quality are often in the news. Um, do we, do you have a sort of an easy sense of how methodologically researchers are able to determine that uh, air pollution is bad? Just from, I'm sort of, I'm thinking of, uh, the sort of battle against the um, tobacco industry that happened sort of in the mid 20th century and how, how much work that took to establish what is a pretty clear causal link. Um, so it's, well, just to say something about the, the media attention regard, uh, related to air pollution first. I mean, firstly, it's, yeah. uh, it's great. Um, it's very satisfying to see increasing attention uh, paid towards 
air pollution. Uh, but there's, a, you know, I asked myself what took so long because we've known that this was a major public health problem. We've had very good epidemiological studies um, demonstrating that outdoor air pollution was uh, leading to lower life expectancy since the 1990s. So um, right. while it's great to see that, uh, you know, increasing attention now, it's really uh, similar to tobacco, really, what took so long. Um, and uh, I think... Um, What's been particularly satisfying in terms of the media attention is really this uh, focus on parts of the world outside of high-income countries, um, and that uh, you know we see particularly at this time of year, November, we, is when you see really high air pollution levels in uh, around uh, uh, northern India and the Indo-Gangetic Plain. Um, you know that tends to get a lot of media coverage this time of year, um, and yeah. uh, you know increasingly. Uh, also showing some of the evidence that's coming from toxicological studies so that, um, you know, we have evidence now that combustion particles don't just get into our lungs, but can be detected in other parts of the body, like in, in the placenta in, in, um, in pregnant women, they have been they can detect wow. it in, in brain tissue. So um, I think that is... Uh, you know, those those make really good uh, news stories because I think it makes it very, it really, uh, you know, brings the story home to people. This is not an abstract thing. These particles are, are getting into your body and damaging, you know, yeah. the health of unborn children. Wow. So there's a sort of sense in which we're much more porous than perhaps uh, <laughs> we might sort of intuitively uh, imagine. Yeah, but, absolutely. Because, uh, you know, there was always this idea that the placenta protects the fetus and, you know, uh, that's, the, you know, uh, the fetus should be quite safe. Uh, similarly, the brain is protected by the blood brain barrier. But these sort of toxicological evidence is showing that combustion particles can can tr travel through these tissues. Um, and I think uh, that is really disturbing for people. So I think these are really um, effective media stories because uh, just to get that kind of engagement that, you know, um, you know, everyone is vulnerable basically to these combustion products. Right. Um, and I think um, it also focuses a, a lot of attention on um, ultrafine particles. So really small particles. Um, and uh, but these are still today unregulated, but I have a particularly important role in, uh, in terms of being able to move beyond the lungs into other parts of the body. Um, yeah. And in terms of, uh, you know, how do we know air pollution is bad for you? Well, there are different disciplines that are relevant there. Uh, I mentioned toxicology. So, you know, often in toxicology, these are experimental studies that can be done uh, in humans or in human tissue or in animals. Um, you know, this gives us information about the specific mechanisms. What is it about um, air pollution that that is damaging for for uh, particular types of, um, of 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 tissues and relevant for specific diseases? Uh, I'm an epidemiologist. Um, you know, we don't usually do experimental studies in epidemiology for air pollution. There are some randomized. Um, uh, control trials that look at, for example, swapping out uh, traditional biomass-based cookstoves for, um, you know, uh, LPG uh, is is yeah. sort of the main where we see the, the really exciting trial data coming out. 
Um, so those are experimental studies. But most of what we do is just observing the world as it is, as people go about their, their, da their daily lives. Some people get exposed more to air pollution than others, and we use that variability to try and link it to, um, you know, see if there's a relationship between higher exposure and higher frequency of, of disease. Um, right. And so these are typically quite small uh, effects compared to something like active smoking, which we know is really very bad for you. <laughs> you know, we're looking at, let's yeah. say, much more dilute um, combustion byproducts when we're looking at outdoor air pollution. And so we need really large sample size uh, in, in, in our studies to be able to uh, basically identify these associations. Uh, but then presumably if you apply those associations to the sort of the global population, you end up with a pretty significant uh, mortality uh, sort of contribution from air pollution, even if it's a sort of a, a more subtle effect than smoking. Exactly. And, uh, you know, so it's a it's a, a small relative increase, let's say for um, in let's say in, 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 a, in a city like London, if you take, uh, let's say, the 10 percent of the population with the lowest exposure and compare them to the 10 percent with the highest exposure, there would yeah. be some relative increase in disease frequency with higher exposure, but it's it's pretty small compared to things like smoking. But everyone is essentially exposed to air pollution. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, as we mentioned, almost everyone's exposed above the WHO guidelines and in some cases by a huge margin. Um, and so when you when you calculate, you know, how much people are exposed to air pollution and what is the increase in uh, disease and disability, uh, disease and mortality from air pollution globally, it's, it's a huge impact. And this is what, um, mm -hmm. you know, the Global Burden of Disease Project really is, is very effective at showing. Uh, and it's, a, it's an issue for outdoor air pollution and household air pollution. And, you know, the, the Global Burden of Disease Project has been tracking this now over many years. And I think for many people, it's, it's quite a surprise to see air pollution up there among the top risk factors for uh, for uh, basically death and, and disease globally. Yeah. One, one thing your work, uh, if I'm right in saying this, you sort of focus or have focused a lot on India as a, as a country, uh, sort of specifically in terms of um, poor air quality. Are you able to sort of speak a little bit about the specifics of what that work uh, entails and some of the ways in which... Um, India in particular is, is impacted and what it is that makes that happen? Yeah, so, uh, you know, as I mentioned, this particular time of year uh, is always when air quality in India becomes a big, a big story because of, uh, you know, the change, you can get very, very high concentrations in, in, in northern India at this time of year due to uh, more uh, source activities, so um, stubble burning, uh, it's also when Diwali happens and also mm -hmm. is a consequence of, uh, you know, the specific meteorology at this time of year. But India is um, obviously a vast and very heterogeneous country. And you see this also in, in, in terms of the outdoor air pollution. So there you have much higher concentrations of air pollution in the north compared to the south. Um, this is throughout the year. Um, obviously, this time of year is very special. Um, and this has to do with population density, density of sources like coal burning fire, uh, coal burning power plants, um, meteorology and you know, barriers to dispersion like the Himalayas. Um, uh, so 
it's particularly an issue in the north. Um, you know, the annual average concentration of PM 2.5 in Delhi is well above 100 micrograms per meter cube. In, wow, in the sense. south, where I've worked, it's around, let's say, 30, 35, um, so quite a bit lower. Um, you know, through uh, a, a, the Chai project, which we uh, finished a few years ago, we were working outside of the city of Hyderabad in, um, in uh, the state of Telangana. And there the, uh, the concentrations were about uh, 35 micrograms per meter cubed. But what was interesting there is, um, you know, we were working in basically a rural area um, and there's almost no air pollution monitoring outside of big, uh, outside of big cities. So there's right. this focus uh, often that air pollution is an urban, an urban issue, uh, outdoor air pollution. And, uh, you know, I think in India, what you see is, is quite high air pollution concentrations in many rural areas. Um, and that, uh, and, and that's, you know, essentially what we could show with the monitoring that we did in, in Telangana. And a lot, um, this is for many reasons, you know, Fine particles are sort of regional in in many cases, so uh, that's um, and you have a lot of other sources of combustion than uh, than vehicles that are that are influential in rural areas, particularly ho- household yeah. sources of um, of household energy. So India's, uh, you know just a fascinating place. Uh, it's, it's a very fascinating place uh, for an air pollution epidemiologist. Um, and uh, what was, I think, particularly interesting there was also some of the work that we did on uh, not just what the air pollution levels are outside, but what do people actually breathe? What is their personal exposure to PM 2.5? Right. And, um, and we looked at this in the CHAI project by combining... Uh, wearable camera data. Uh, so we were essentially trying to find out what matters more for your exposure to air pollution. Is it is it who you are? Is it that you're a man, a woman, an, old, an older person, a younger person? Is it where you are uh, or what you're doing? And we used this combination of wearable camera data, GPS tracking data, and continuous uh, personal um, fine particle measurements to try and answer that question. And, um, yeah. you know, what we saw for um, women was that their exposure was largely determined by whether they had access to uh, LPG or were using biomass as their main uh, cooking fuel, um, how often they were cooking. Uh, and I think what was interesting for men is that it was a much more complex set of uh, factors that, that influenced their exposure. So the uh, whether or not um, in the household they had access to LPG was very influential on the men's exposure. So even though they don't cook, yeah. <laughs> they still get exposed. Right, they're still in the same they're house. They're still in the yeah, same yeah. house. Um, but also you see uh, the contribution from active smoking and a lot of occupational exposures. So in thinking yeah. about um, you know what what needs to be targeted to reduce exposure to air pollution uh, to improve uh, health outcomes, you know it's really a range of things. It's you know controlling sources outdoors, but also um, this uh, you know protecting people in occupational settings and uh, and obviously the you know increasing access to uh, to uh, LPG in India is 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 really a priority. Um, just uh, sort of zooming out a little bit, we're uh, we're in the uh, immediate aftermath of uh, COP27 when we're recording this. 
Um, so things wrapped up um, a few days ago. Uh, I'm just wondering if you have a sense uh, of how you see uh, international meetings like COP27, which, of course, you know, um, the co-benefits of, of mitigation are, are discussed at meetings like this. How much do you see those kind of meetings as being a driver for improving air quality uh, and climate change more broadly, um, or whether it comes from or change comes from a sort of different source? Um, if you had any any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it's a tricky question. I mean, obviously, the big breakthrough from this last meeting was related to the loss and damages funding for developing countries, which is you know very relevant to help them address adaptation yeah. to climate change, but doesn't really address this issue on the mitigation side. Uh, you know, where I think we have very little progress, and <laughs> which is quite alarming. Um, yeah. And I think this concept. I mean, my personal view is that the concept of the health co benefits of transitioning away from let's say fossil fuels to renewable energy and you know the, the health the, the health co-benefits are huge but still they don't feature that much in the discussions um when mm -hmm. we look at um you know many of the discussions uh in these sort of international fora it's it's um i think the co-benefits concept just doesn't get a lot of attention. And I think there's, you know, a lot more that needs to be done, let's say, from the research and advocacy communities to just really keep keep banging on about this <laughs> because right. um, yeah. I think it is a compelling argument and uh, and it particularly compelling because if you look at India, for example, in places like, um, you know, where you have high levels of air pollution, you know, exiting fossil fuels uh, you know, has the potential to deliver really massive uh, health co-benefits at really, uh, you know, from lower air pollution. It's not, um, you know, straightforward. And I think this is, uh, so, you know, some of the work that we've done in terms of looking at the, um, the interplay between ambient air pollution and household air pollution show that, uh, you know, if, if you have specific strategies for reaching, let's say, uh, a, a two degree or 1.5 degree uh, uh, target, that that could lead to increases in uh, prices of clean cooking fuel like LPG and some sort of backsliding uh, away from LPG to, to biomass, which is essentially free for many people. Yeah. Um, so it's important in thinking about how you know, what's that pathway look like to um, to basically achieving the the climate change mitigation goals and the uh, the um, important health co-benefits of lower uh, air pollution to make to, to make sure that there isn't some un, un um, sort of negative consequence or trade off there. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, some of the work that we did was showing that, you know, that could be addressed in a sort of more joined up policy that that combined the climate change mitigation and, uh, you know, increasing access to clean cooking fuel uh, through a subsidy yeah. or, or something like this. Um, but I think, uh, you know, these are really compelling uh, arguments because the, the health benefits are immediate and they happen in the place where the emission reductions uh, take place. And that's obviously not the case with greenhouse gases, where the benefit is yeah. you know, experienced globally and, uh, the, and, and much farther out into the future. So um, 
I'm I'm still looking for uh, you know the way to get more engagement on this concept of, uh, of health code benefits in some of these international forums, um, and you know to just uh, because I think it could be a compelling argument for people that are you know maybe more motivated by you know what's in this for me because it it, it does really uh, deliver. Uh, benefits for, yeah. um, let's say, the communities where the emission reductions take place. Well, that's fantastic. I mean, that's a good uh, a good uh, advertisement for this podcast, perhaps in terms of its focus on uh, uh, mitigation co benefits. Um, well, Catherine, that was uh, that was a fantastic um, talk through of everything there. Uh, really appreciate you coming on, and uh, thanks very much for taking the time. My pleasure.